You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. The Trek Files, Season 11, Episode 16, Letter to Fred Durant, May 23rd, 1972. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans, Star Trek historians. You're going to love today's show. You know what? The tech heads, you're going to get into this too. All you canonistas, I say that lovingly all the time. Yes, all of our Trekophiles spelled with an F. We've got a humdinger of a show for you today. We're going to look into, well, a, a lesser examined aspect of Star Trek. In fact, we're not even going to be talking about a series per se, but the franchise as a whole and its intersection with, dare I say it, all of American society, or at least uh, one aspect, one aspect of, and I should say global society. Okay, I'm going to stop vague explaining here. <laughs> you know what to do. We're back with our documents of the week. We are really the Trek Files, the only podcast with homework. So go to our Facebook page. That's where you'll find the documents, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Check out the documents there. And listen, I have a first-time guest for the show, exciting guest. I can't wait to get into this. First, of course, here's an audio sample from those documents, and then I'll be right back with this week's special guest. Ran into your associate, Wilton S. Dillon, at South Illinois University last week, where we were both attending a conference of the Committee for the Future. I had just commented in a speech that the Smithsonian Institute apparently realized better than the aerospace industry that fiction about space could be a prime factor in developing public support for the national space effort, pointing out that nations have always required legends and heroes for any major effort, including war. Certainly the nation's science and exploration efforts deserve no less attention, and I had given your request for Star Trek artifacts as an example that forward-thinking people were beginning to realize that fiction sometimes plays as important a role as fact. Yes, indeed, Star Trek fans, Star Trek, uh, you, you Trekophiles, that is our topic for today. Take a look at that letter this week, because it gets to the heart of, well, an interesting issue that I was tickled by, but then have been, have been um, fascinated to watch play out in the years since. Captivated, climax, cornerstone here by the appearance of the original USS Enterprise filming model in the National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian. And if we're going in that direction... And following here with uh, Jean's correspondence, who better to have as a guest today? I'm so tickled to have her, a curator and the chair of the Space History Department at the National Air and Space Museum. Yes, the Smithsonian. Uh, Margaret Hawaiikamp. Margaret, it's, I'm so glad you could you could join us. And folks will also know you as kind of the face of the whole last go rounds restoration project for the for the mighty Enterprise, the Ten Footer, that's captivated so many people. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> well, uh, again, you're you're a representative of the Smithsonian. I know you are. You're probably of a like mind here that uh, apparently Gene Roddenberry and Fred Durant were having in their letters here about the place of the fiction um, in our. You think of museums as real life places where real life artifacts 
are on display and preserved. But and I, that, yeah, it's one of the questions I get most often, right? Why does the Museum of Actual Aviation and Real Space Flight have in its collections this imaginary, a model of an imaginary spaceship? Uh, and the answer is always because, you know, inspiration and imagination are so much a part of not only how spaceflight has been imagined and therefore what's possible, but what's possible in terms of you know engineering. And a lot of imagination and inspiration runs through all of that. And the conversations, I think, that we can have at the museum between these artifacts, between our visitors uh, looking at these artifacts, when we have the real next to the fantastical, I think, or even the better, the imagined and yet really grounded, right? The speculative mm-hmm. fiction, um, I think, just gets people thinking and dreaming in new ways. Yeah. And and a lot of speculative fiction, especially on screen, gets people dreaming. I know that uh, another aspect of government, <laughs> our friends at NASA, uh, just the time, especially at the Johnson Center in Houston, uh, a couple of times I've, I've had tours and... At least two-thirds of the people there, I, I, Star Trek gets mentioned when they're talking about me, but at least two-thirds of it sincerely say, oh, I'm here because of Star Trek. You know, Scotty or Spock or McCoy or or, what, or whoever, down, Data, whatever, Jordy, on down the line, I'm here because of that inspiration. And they can certainly tell the difference between fact and fantasy. But that ins- And it feels like back here in the set, this is 1972. Now, tell us a little bit about where we are in the timeline, because I know National Air and Space, the building... Opened in 76, correct? The National Air and Space Museum's building on the National Mall opened on the bicentennial weekend, July 1 of 1976. But the museum existed as a part of the Smithsonian before that. The Smithsonian started as a research institution that then became the National Museum. And then different parts of that started to get pulled off and more specialized. And so there was first a National Air Museum. And then in the 1960s, mm-hmm. it became the National Air and Space Museum. And then they were getting so many things and getting so much wonderful feedback from the public that they were really looking to create its own dedicated space. And so that opened in 1976. But the people who were building it um, were parts of aviation and space flight going back farther than that. So Fred Durant had been a naval aviator, a test pilot. Uh, who then went to work in industry and also just was uh, the kind of person who brought people together, who had all kinds of personal connections. Uh, He consulted with the Department of Defense, with the CIA. Um, He was parts of scientific projects as advisors. And so he really became an important part of what became the Department of Astronautics at the time Uh at the museum and his personal connections had a big effect on what they were able to do. I Well, yeah, a couple of things reading this letter, and then I and I actually did a little research on him, too, because he was a name that I had just through my life, and maybe it was even looking at even some of Gene's correspondence and just, you know, conversations, and he would mention just in passing, oh, Fred Durant, this, you know, Frederick C. Durant III. <laughs> But he had a, you know, had an engineering background. In fact, I, you were, you were going through his resume there. I think he was even at Bell Al Aircraft Labs after the war. About the time yeah. they built the X one, and Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. You know, went Mach one the first time even. So he, yeah, he was. But it was also interesting that he, his first wife died, I think, early. But then he, his second wife, Pip, I think was her nickname. But it was like aside from all the engineering uh, and the scientific 
that we talk about, you know, now networking and all that. Apparently, they were the social butterflies of of Washington. And in the fifties and sixties, when everything with the space industry and somewhere between the politics of the Cold War and just everybody coming out of World War II, that you know, tech crazy and everything was just exploding and blooming. That they were a real like hub of pulling people together and networking, and um, very much so. I think yeah. their dinner parties really um, brought people together. <laughs> I have to think that uh, Fred Durant and Gene Roddenberry talked flying. That you know, oh, anytime yes. you the one pilot in a room, uh, there's a <laughs> lot of ground flying that happens. And uh, I think that um, you know, I, my understanding is uh, Pip Durant and Major Barrett got along very well. Um, and so those kinds of conversations then turn into bigger conversations yeah. about, you know, how can we connect the different things that we're working on? Right. I, I, again, as I read that, the description of his of his wife and his family life, I was like, oh, my God, if there was anyone ever completely, you know, simpatico to, to fit with Gene and Majel, it would be these <laughs> two coming from their different worlds and seeing how their overlap could, you know, uh, I say benefit themselves, but benefit everyone. And they instantly they did get it. And is it fair to say that Fred is the reason why? That's fascinating, you see, because you, you, you said the Smithsonian began as an archive, as in, you know, it was more about mm-hmm. the papers. And we're talking the 18, whatever, 1840s? What, yes. Yeah. So the Smithsonian begins in the 19th century, really as a research institution right. funding other people's research. So when the Wright brothers wanted to know what is there to know about how one might invent a heavier than air flying machine, they wrote to the Smithsonian to see what they could mm. learn. And, um, so the Smithsonian was a funding organization, and then it becomes a museum. And there's really an interest in how do we show people what's being done? How do we, you know, um, bring the spirit of St. Louis in the 1920s? What if, you know, the Smithsonian is sending a telegram to Charles Lindbergh in Paris in 1927 saying, can we have your airplane? Um and so as they're putting the building together in the 1970s, they already the museum already had a substantial artifact collection, but they're looking for these ways that they can illustrate and enliven the stories mm-hmm. that they're going to tell. And those kinds of pop culture references really are an important thread that is all through those exhibits right when it opens in 1976. Well, it was in our audio sample here, but it it, did, it gets back to that. It's who, and again, f- folks at NASA, folks all through all the technical fields, scientific fields. Uh, and you know, I shouldn't, you, you know, we talk about STEM into STEAM now. I mean, government and the, and the soft sciences, the things that inspire people to take, to take their fields to the next level and take society to the next level. Um, we shouldn't be so, uh, you know, blue-blooded about it and, and snooty that we're not looking at that. And Will gets it. Now, I, I track this, and I think there's a, I call it the, the pendulum effect, and there's a pendulum to everything. And apparently, Will Durant's era of collecting more, uh, I mean, look, it wasn't the National Air and Space Museum, but I fondly remember the first time I got to, from the Midwest, got to D.C., and visited the Smithsonian, which was, you know, a ticket off, and especially the, the uh, American History Museum. Mm-hmm. And, and being as fresh as they were then, seeing Archie and Edith's chair and the signboard from MASH and Kermit the Frog and Dorothy's Dorothy's ruby slippers and and thinking, wow, that's that, that that's been included. Pop culture has been included, which was a term I just kind of still wrapping my head around at the time. But the fact that the Smithsonian uh, considered that worthwhile and that was 
That was in the that was in the American History Museum. But this is the same. This yeah. is an outgrowth of that same philosophy, right? But that kind of ebbs and flows on your end of administration and things, interpretation wise. I think it's been consistent, more consistent than people realize. Um, there's always been this interest in how spaceflight has been imagined and how that envisioning is a real part of the engineering process. And so I think that the more you dig into that, the more that you find the people who are doing that, the Matt Jeffries of the world, mm -hmm. are also fans of aviation um, who are you know, thinking about how might this vehicle look like it has real parts. Um, who might put that aircraft logic on it, as the Okudas have named it, and then who are really a part of thinking about, you know, what would it look like to have a massive starship, not a spaceship, but a starship that would go, you know, across the universe and that would carry very clearly, visibly, dozens of people, hundreds of people who would be a part of the crew complement. And so for the museum being able to have that as a touch point just becomes uh, such a fast distilled way of connecting with what people already know about how spaceflight is being imagined and then asking them to take that step further with them to think about, you know, so what's the kind of current engineering? What's the current science? What are thinking about. And you mentioned the you know, Matt Jeffries, of course, out of the gate, and the Akutas and the likes of like Rick Sternbach and John Eves and Doug Drexler and and the, the Thomas Marone and everyone at Star Trek Online who are online and I mean uh, on screen now. And just and then the fans who who part of what makes it's a synergistic thing, right? People are they're caught up in Star Trek because it does um stand on real science it projects real science it's obviously fiction into the future and i think that's part of not just the attraction for an audience but that's what makes it a fit for the smithsonian as opposed to some of the other franchises and and science fiction storytelling that are fun but star trek has always leaned into the science i mean does that make it easier to have the enterprise alongside apollo 11 and the spirit of st louis i think it does um i think that it was something certainly that Gene Roddenberry was very self-conscious of. We know that he was writing when he was asking for the Enterprise to be designed, that he was concerned that it not look like something that was on the drawing board at any of the big major aerospace companies at the time, right? He didn't want his futuristic ship to come out and then suddenly look like something that was coming <laughs> off the North American line, um, you know, five years later. Mm -hmm. But it is, I think, something that we've been able to persuade people that this is not um, diminishing or uh, trivializing any of the very real accomplishments. And I find that it's an easier and easier sell because, as you say, when you go to NASA centers or major aerospace companies, they're chock-a-block full of science fiction fans um, and people who have been watching this kind of imagination you know we know if we go back to the apollo astronauts they were growing up on buck rogers and flash gordon right. um no bucks that, no buck rogers as, and that kind of imagination <laughs> was a part of what they were uh looking at and now if you talk to people who are um very often in these fields this is a place where they have enjoyed that speculative vision of what could be possible. Right. Listen, this is just fascinating. We've got more in our files, Margaret. I, I've. It's. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and we get into the the, the model. It's the 50th anniversary of the donation 
uh, this yes. year. I would love to come back. We've got more in our files with just this whole circuit of, of uh, the Smithsonian and the and the world of Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek's overlap. Would you come back and talk with us again sometime? I'd be delighted. I, I love this. I love this so much, and it's so good to see you. And and uh, congrats. I ho- I know that the um, the Enterprise appearance and the restoration was a huge success. You had a lot of a lot of attention and well deserved. And then it went. It caused consternation when it had to go away a little bit. But now we're headed back to that. Maybe we can talk more about that next time. That'd be great. Okay. Thank you so much. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All of our documents and your chance to comment, and please do, are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek in Portal 47. Yeah, that's me at larrynemichek.com. Now, that's where you can also link in for all of the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.